Hello and welcome to the AV Forums podcast for the 27th of August. I'm Phil Hinton and joining me on this edition, our assistant editor, Steve Withers. This is a story you will tell your grandchildren and mightily bored they'll be. Games editor, Mark Botwright. I've got lunatics laughing at me from the woods. And audio reviewer, Ed Selly. There is a fire at the travel agency. Welcome to yet another hour of some focused AV chat mixed with what, Ed? Um... Banter, isn't that what Malky <laughs> Mackay calls it? Or, or, <laughs> or probably want to stay clear of that. Yeah, actually. let's not go there. So we start this week with another Hollywood star annoying Mark Botwright, and which has become quite a regular uh, most weeks recently, and that is the death of yet another legend in the movie world, Steve, and that's uh, Richard Attenborough. Yeah, I mean, in all fairness, he was ninety, uh, so had a good innings, uh, and I don't think he'd done much career-wise recently. Um, but still, you know, sad news. I mean, he's he's been uh, a, a fixture in the British film industry since the 30s, although he did start off playing sort of usually playing snivelly, cowardly characters, apart from the character of Pinky um, in Brighton Rock, which he was particularly um, unnerving in. And then, of course, in the, in the latter part of his career, in the 70s and 80s and 90s, he became a, a big name director, of course, won the Oscar for Gandhi, directed my favourite war movie of all time, which is uh, A Bridge Too Far. And also did things like Oh, What a Lovely War and uh, Young Winston, which I also rather enjoyed. Uh, Ed, you can feel me in here probably. It involves one of the scenes is the last cavalry charge by the British Army, I believe. I believe, uh, I believe that's the case. I confess it's not a film I've seen, but yes. Um, well, anyway, Winston Churchill was present at this last cavalry charge we ever, uh, the British Army ever was involved in. Yes. And um, Gandhi and Chaplin as well. He made, he made a biography of Chaplin, among other things. And of course, I suppose for a certain generation, he'll always be remembered as... as um, um, not Richard Hammond. What's his first name? <laughs> Father Christmas. Yeah, Father Christmas. Have you seen 30, America on 34th Street? It's John Hammond. John Hammond. Thank Park. you. Yes, John Hammond. <laughs> Richard, Hammond. Richard Hammond. <laughs> I certainly had, I kept thinking Richard Hammond. The Hamster. Now that's a five pick I'd watch. <laughs> <laughs> Particularly for the crash sequence. <laughs> yeah, we, we spared my expense. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, but anyway, so for, for I guess for a generation of uh, filmgoers, he'll always be John Hammond from Jurassic Park. And we have a T-Rex. Uh, possibly the worst Scottish accent in cinema history, in my opinion. Yes, that was Steve. Uh, yeah? That Mrs. Doubtfire. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm sorry. No, con- no, no discussion of the worst Scottish accent in history is ever. Two words: Christopher Lambert. Oh, well, he wasn't even trying, was he? <laughs> well, I, I, mean, you I had don't. A Scotsman know. playing an Egyptian Spaniard and a Frenchman you, playing a. You Scotsman. don't know what being immortal does to the vocal yeah. cords. <laughs> no, no, no. It you're seriously right, affected Sean Connery's Spanish accent. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so we're going to go to gaming next, but it's hardware news, if that makes sense. Uh, so, Mark, if you've got a games console, what's the, the number one uh, thing after peripherals that you need to have to, to play on your games console? Um, an internet connection. No, that wouldn't what? be the case, would it? So you're going to watch you get on an internet connection? Well, it depends. It might be a handheld console. <laughs> no. Sorry, I've got no idea what this bit is. What are we talking about? Are you not, lo- are you not looking at the running order that I sent you? Oh, was this Hodge's bit about TVs? Yeah, yeah. for gaming. Right. Yeah, for yeah. The, clue, no, no. the clue was in the title, but we'll let it go. <laughs> right, yeah. No, I'm on message. <laughs> You're not awake, though, are you? <laughs> just, just, it is just... a bit early in the day for you, isn't it? Half past two. <laughs> yeah, just to explain to people, we are recording this Tuesday afternoon. We normally record on a Monday evening, uh, but obviously it was a bank holiday and the guys wanted the, the, their time with themselves last night, so... Are we awake, Mr. Uh, Botwright? 
Yeah, yeah, no, no, I'm, I've got it. Yeah. Okay, so Definitely. best TV for From gaming is 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 it a is it a, a subject that you get asked about quite a bit? Um, no, if, if I'm going to be brutally honest, um, I, I think largely because, um, well, the answer at one point would have been quite straightforward, which would have been plasma um, for response rate and contrast and the like. Um, as obviously production has been scaled back on that front, um, should we say the question doesn't seem that pertinent anymore. Um, you've got lots of kind of LCD, LED sets um, with their fancy kind of, you know, X number of hertz modes on them um, with associated kind of problems therein. Um, but generally, when it comes to comes to gaming, uh, I suppose some of the drawbacks previously that people would have leveled at, you know, the LED sets, which would have been a question about, um, you know, color fidelity, that kind of thing, you know, natural colors. Generally, it, it doesn't really apply as much to gaming simply because, you know, the the palette is usually fairly lurid anyway. So, you know, it, they're not really known for, you know, gentle hues. Sorry, I was thinking of that. They're the, just the wonderful subdued tones of asteroids. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I guess the big hot potato is, has always been input lag, uh, Mark, when it comes to gaming. You know, a, a frame here and there could cost you quite dearly. Um, and I, I guess a lot of gamers, to start with, wouldn't actually realise that it's the TV that was the problem. No, no, because, I mean, you, you've got this kind of chain. Uh, so therefore, it, it could be anywhere... Um, I, th I think very much there are some people who who place a great emphasis on that. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of talk about um, quality of netcode for for online games and how um, dedicated servers you want. Obviously, the minimal amount of uh, you want the minimal amount of hurdles between what you're pressing a button, what that's doing as an impulse, and sending it through um, to actually make something happen. Uh, Certain games almost seem to kind of predict that with how they're setting up. Um, so therefore, you're always slightly behind what's happening, and that leads to certain kind of accusations that obviously it's the game, and that's what I always say. It's 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 a broken game. That's the reason why I always end up low on the leaderboards. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it's it's something that very much, uh, uh, if you're very serious about it, then obviously, yes, you want absolute minimal lag. Okay, so I'm going to go to the, the main gaming guru uh, now on the podcast because he went out and bought a console. Uh, Steve? Um, when <laughs> yeah, I've got a console. Uh, so I have connected to a television. Of course, and we are talking about input lag. It is something that we have tested for quite a number of years now um, on TVs. We actually test the input lag. So just quickly explain the little device that we use and how it's done and how accurate it is. Yeah, it's... Um it is a little little box that you connect to the TV via HDMI. There's a little button on it you press, which when you press it, it starts sending signal down to the television. And there's a photoreceptor on the box that you place over the um, image that's being projected onto the on, well, put on TV by the box. And it measures the response time from going from the device into the TV and then being received by the photosensor. So it's pretty simple in a way that it works, but very, very effective. I mean, previously we'd had to do things like... Um, We'd put up a stop clock, basically a stopwatch, you know, a time timer on the screen, and a timer on the laptop, photograph the two and see what the delay was between the laptop and the uh, and and the TV that you're and using. Course, and of course, you would also use uh, another display which had no lag whatsoever, like a CRT. There was also if you had a CRT, yes. 
when I haven't seen a CRT in a few years. But, <laughs> but, but that used to be the That would be the, 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 yeah, CRTs, no, no, no delay, therefore ideal for comparing. But uh, the easiest way of doing it prior to uh, uh, um, us using the device, which is was developed by a guy called Leo, Leo, Leo Bondar, wasn't it? Uh, it's a clever little device, and it works really well. And we've been using it now for what, about two and a half years, I think. And, and, it, and it, you know, basically, it means that we're using the same device. Both Mark and I are using the same device on every TV. So there's a very consistent measurement going on here, uh, and and it varies from year to year in terms of the uh, the input lag. And it obviously varies from manufacturer to manufacturer. A lot of it depends on how much processing power is going on and how how much that's being bypassed in the game mode. Because most TVs will have a game mode. And the idea behind it is it bypasses as much processing as possible, therefore reducing the input lag. Uh, and for very competitive gamers, they want it to be as low as possible. Then you can I know you can buy dedicated monitors if you're a PC gamer and that kind of thing that have, you know, very, very low, almost no input lag. But I mean, for uh, a consumer television, Generally, uh, I think we've measured this year, Sony have been the outright winners this year in terms of input lags. Um, Mark's measured uh, down as low as 18, 20 milliseconds, which is very low for an LED LCD TV. Um, obviously, plasmas are kind of gone now, so that's not really an issue anymore. We found that um, the average is between 30 and 40 milliseconds on most LED LCD TVs. This is 1080p. Uh, moving on to um, Ultra HD 4K, um, there's more processing being done there. Uh, so you tend to find the slightly larger input lag uh, around about 40, 50 milliseconds, sometimes as high as 60, depending on the um, manufacturer. Um, obviously, you know, if you're buying a 4K TV, there isn't really much 4K gaming unless you've got a massively high-spec uh, PC rig. But um, but in terms of uh, image quality, you, know, you get the benefits of additional um, uh, upscaling. But obviously, that does add to the input lag, which is the problem with the 4K TVs. But certainly, if you're buying a full HD television, either um, for, um, for for both for watching TV and for gaming, then um, you can expect anything between sort of 18 to 20 milliseconds up to about 30 to 40 milliseconds, depending on the manufacturer. But at the moment, the, the winners this year, at least, have been Sony who have produced what, TVs. What would you say was acceptable, Steve? Um, I mean, I've got a figure in my head, but what would you say was would be acceptable? Generally, I'd say anything below 40 milliseconds is good. Yeah, Around 50 milliseconds yeah. is great. Um, I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm not. I haven't got cat-like reactions, and I'm not a particularly competitive big-time <laughs> gamer. You'll, you'll get guys in the forums who go like, "I can see, you know, 10 milliseconds is too slow, too slow for me." But I think, I think once you start taking into account your internet connection, the delay between the controller and the console, and the TV and, and the console, you know, there's and so the many factors. And the fact factors. you're playing solitaire. Yeah, and the fact that you know you're a 40 year old male whose reactions aren't what they used to be, then uh, then you know there's lots of factors in there, and, and 10 milliseconds here or there, I don't think it's going to make any difference to anybody. But yeah, yeah. there are guys that you know will claim that they can tell the difference, and maybe they can. Yeah. But certainly, anything about 30 milliseconds is going to be good in my book. Yeah. Any input on on that? <laughs> Excuse the pun, uh, Mark. Uh, no, generally I, uh, I'm vastly uh, quickly heading towards kind of Steve's state of I, you know, it, it's my own, should we say crap skills rather than any kind of input <laughs> lag that's the main difference okay uh, let's move things on uh, you can read mark's article it is on the home page at the moment uh, what are the best tvs for gaming and he rounds up uh, across a number of technologies uh, what have measured the lowest in our tests and like we say we've got about two or three years data now uh, steve on every tv that we get in uh, it is measured so uh, there is quite a bit of data there and if you want to find that out on your TV or a TV you're thinking about buying and we've reviewed it, then you will find the data in the reviews. Uh, so let's move on to uh, Ask the Idiots. Melton Boy uh, said, based on today's available content, uh, what TV technology would you choose from the current models 
And would the answer be different if 4K Blu-ray uh, had been announced or has been announced? Um, so let's go to Ed first. Um, Ed, uh, based on the, the content that you watch and the available content, which TV technology, if you were going out to buy a TV, would you choose? I was going out to buy a TV, that's the tricky bit, because for me, where I have no 4K content and no 4K viewing system, I'd, so I'd still be looking for a 1080 screen, I'd, oh, I guess I'd have to hunt round and find find another last-of-the-line Panasonic Plasma. For the moment, that's what my requirement would be. If I was suddenly and mysteriously richer, that is to say I haven't bought a kitchen and stuff like that, <laughs> I suppose... I would definitely be interested in demoing some uh, uh, some OLED screens and seeing if they justify the increase in cost over these last line plasmas and seeing if I can justify that to myself. I don't think I'm realistically going to be in a position to afford 4K OLED anytime soon. That's what I imagine my next screen will be, but I'm optimistically believing I'm going to get a bit more time out of my current screen before that that sort of rears its ugly head so if i needed to um uh replace the screen tomorrow i'd i'd, I'd be a luddite I'd, I'd be trying to hunt down a plasma and it's weird i met up with a friend of mine on saturday and it turns out that he's uh, emigrating to the states next year and he mentioned that his krp 600 might be going begging and do you know really? what i might yet yeah, make a make an offer make a play for that See where we go. <laughs> okay, but uh, what if they announce Blu-ray 4K tomorrow? Would it change um, your mind? Well, because I've never bought an LCD television and I have no intention of buying one anytime soon, that would be a complicated one. I'd I'd still I'd have to hang fire and see. I'd still be inclined to hang fire just in the immediate term and see what the 4K OLED situation is and whether it comes under the pipe dream or something that can be afforded with a bit of forethought. So that would probably be my answer there. Okay, cool. Uh, um, I think I would be along the same line, Zed. I think I'd go out and I'd try and find a, a ZT65 if there was still one available. Uh, that's what I'd go looking for. Um, if I couldn't find one of them, I would look uh, seeing possibly about an OLED, a 1080 one, I think. Uh, in terms of 4K Blu-ray, if they announced that tomorrow, I'd buy a 4K projector. Not interested in a 4K TV. Uh, the only 4K panel I would buy would be for my PC Um because I've started editing in 4K, and uh, it'd be nice to see it in 4K. Uh, Mark Botwright? Um, I'd probably follow Ed down the kind of Luddite route and, and offer his friend £10 more for his set. <laughs> <laughs> it's a bidding war now, you're after, yeah. eh? <laughs> Don't forget, Ed lives on eBay, so... <laughs> been watching too much daytime TV. <laughs> uh, and if 4K was announced, are you interested? 4K Blu-ray? Possibly, but I think that would be... I, I'd want to see what was available, how affordable it was going to be, simply because I think it's it's one of those cases where when you've, you've replaced the collection on DVD and then you've replaced the collection on Blu-ray, there's a certain amount of fatigue where you just kind of think how... Yeah, how expensive will the discs be and how much is it going to cost to replace everything? Are we going to see it all kind of remastered? It, you know, there are a lot of variables in there for me to want to say, yes, definitely, I'd, I'd jump through that hope just for 4K Blu-ray. Okay. And Mr. Weathers? Well, uh, if there's no 4K Blu-ray uh, and my uh, Kuro suddenly broke down, I would probably be looking at 
an OLED replacement. If I could find one, the only thing is at the moment, you've only got uh, LG supporting the technology really, and I wouldn't be that keen on it being curved. So if I could find a nice uh, flat OLED, 55-inch OLED, that would be interesting. I'll be curious to see what happens over the next couple of weeks with Ether coming up in terms of announcements. Um, you know, hopefully LG are going to be true to their word and really push technology at realistic prices, in which case it would be much more tempting. If I could find something at the right, right price point um, and with a flat screen, OLED would be my preferred choice. Um, if 4K Blu-ray became available suddenly, or I could at least launch 4K Netflix even, um, you know, with a higher broadband connection. Um, I think from a TV perspective, I'd probably currently, given the ones that I've seen go for the um, Sony X9, I think that's a lovely picture. Uh, but like you, Phil, I'd be more inclined to get a, a 4K projector because really to benefit from 4K, you want as big an image as possible. Yeah, totally. And if, it, if it's movie material, I want to see it on the big screen. Don't want to watch so it in the, in the absence of uh, my current television, um, I'd be investigating OLED as my preferred technology. Um, I definitely wouldn't want to get, I wouldn't want to replace plasma with um, with an LED LCD television if I didn't have to. Um, so I'd definitely look at OLED. But if it was 4K, then it would either be a Sony X9 for a TV or my preferred option would be, the, well, currently the VW500 um, would be my preferred option for um, for projection. Okay, uh, so that was Mountain Boy. Hopefully that's answered your question on uh, Ask Ladies. If you've got a question for us, then it's uh, on Twitter, at AV Forums, uh, with the hashtag Ask the Idiots and ask your question. And I've got one more uh, for Ed. Uh, Ed, <laughs> uh, basically, um, the question was, uh, when you look at most or almost all new AV amps, they come with an auto EQ system. Uh, why is that not on hi-fi amps? Uh, simply put, because there's huge resistance to them. Um, they do feature on certain hi-fi amps. Uh, Lingdorf, or who sometimes call themselves Tact, depending on what year it is, have been offering a very sophisticated EQ system on their products for some years, and it's had a small number of people take it up, and then everyone else studiously ignore it. There's a perception, right or wrong, that with two speakers, it is more an instance of just simply getting them to behave within the room because you know they, 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 there's there's less if you like there's less you know sort of variance to what you're going to be doing with them than there is to try and bludgeon them into working electronically and you know i'm 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 the same i you know my my, my two channel system has no tone controls it has a balance control and that's it um so yeah there, there's no there's no adjustment you just sort of move the speakers around a bit until it sort of dials into place and you know in extremis you might consider some sort of some sort of iso platform for the speakers if you've got a bit too much bass it's if you like it's just a bit it, it's a, a sense of being a bit reactionary um there's also a sense that as obviously you know digital is a, is a big part of two channel but it it happens you know at a source level as most processing would need to be done in the digital domain you'd be converting from analog to digital and then probably Sorry, you'd be converting from digital to analog and then back to digital to, to to apply EQ and then process it from there, which is considered a slightly inelegant solution. Now, you see, the way I would look at it, Ed, is that, um, you know, you're looking at a box within a box. The, the room will always make a difference. And uh, if you're going to do anything correctly to start with is uh, you're going to correct the room uh, and you're going to look at what the type of response is within that room and then place your speakers uh 
within that space in the best optimum space before looking at EQ. And that's certainly yeah. what I would do with home theatre before applying EQ, Steve. Uh, one of the things is to work out the dimensions of the room, how the room's going to react. And it's it's fairly easy to do with some calculations and then place the speakers where they should be placed. The only problem there is that unless it's a dedicated room, sometimes you can't place them in the best possible place and that's where EQ has a benefit. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you're absolutely right, Phil. Unless you're building a dedicated room, there's always going to be a degree of compromise, I think. It's unlikely you're going to find exactly the right place to put your speakers. But sensible speaker placement um, and ideally using a room that's not a square, but a rectangle, uh, will help. You know, there are things you can do quite easily to to mitigate some of the impacts of the room on your on your um, on your system. Um, and a lot of them, you know, are, are very cheap. You know, putting speakers in the correct places, maybe using things like um, soft furnishings to help absorb reflections, that kind of stuff. You don't have to start putting up, you know, absorption panels on the walls and and um, you know, diffusers at the rear. You know, a bookcase and some books might be just effective at diffusing the sound as, as a diffuser would. So there's lots of things you can do that are completely free to help improve the performance of the room. Um, before you even start thinking about using any auto EQ system, well, I've got to say that in my experience, the auto EQ systems these days are getting better and better by the year. And um, anyone who's experienced uh, Anthem's ARC2 will know that even at uh, what I would consider to be you know the, the lower pro- end of the price range, I know people will say two grand's a lot of money or even a grand, but compared to what you can pay for equipment, and I'm thinking you know twenty, thirty thousand quid, you can get. A staggering amount of, of um, sophistication and flexibility from something in a, in a receiver that's only between one and a half and two thousand pounds. So it's getting better and better. Uh, and you know, maybe I can understand why the hi-fi two-channel would be resistant, but certainly in, in the multi-channel world, is becoming more important. And, well, and, and I guess if, if you look at the hi-fi world, it's it's kind of like saying to us, um, we're going to do away with twenty-four frames a second. We're going to ninety-six frames a second. In it, it's it's like that, isn't it? basically there's an element of that i mean the other thing is um at the moment two areas which enjoy very strong sales you've got vinyl and you've got valve amplification and vinyl for reasons of as i say converting between analog and digital and valves because they are innately again fairly analog in the way they function the idea of applying significant digital post-processing to either of them just you don't have to be necessarily desperately reactionary to find that to be a slightly awkward solution and i say with two speakers and also a breathtaking variety of loudspeakers it should not be rocket science to get them to 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 behave themselves without you know without heavy eqing with you know with multiple you know with five six seven speakers and a subwoofer and often where placement can't be absolutely optimal because, you know, furniture and other requirements get in the way, I, I think it makes an enormous amount more sense. And, I, I, you know, that has to be taken into account. Okay. So hopefully that answered that question as well. And we're going to wrap up on hardware and we'll be back in a second with Games News. Mark, uh, looking at Games News Twitch... I had never heard of this until an article today. I guess it's just it's something which has escaped me and might have escaped quite a few listeners. So maybe you could explain what Twitch is and then why Amazon have bought them. Um, yeah, Twitch is uh, primarily it's a video streaming site and it's it's basically come to prominence because of its ability to stream game content. Not like 
traditional edited trailers and the like or or, or edited reviews which is it, they're just really someone playing a game and, and showing the content as it progresses so they're giving a, a small commentary with it so you're really kind of getting a, a a full consumer view another gamer's view of a game as they're playing so they're making the kind of small comments about you know control schemes and how things are unfolding rather than a kind of broad sweeping review that tells you you know how it all pans out and the like um and and it's it's this twitch service has proved that a massive hit with people um to the point that it's kind of there from the ground floor with the latest series of consoles so you know it's it's in a prominent position there so you can be playing game then you can decide to start sharing your stream or or you can go and watch other people play games and basically yeah amazon have paid best part of a billion dollars to buy it up um it, it Google were in negotiations, but it seems like they've backed away because of potentially the deal could have been blocked due to anti-competition laws and they couldn't agree any kind of a, a kind of fee should it get blocked at a late stage. Um, so Amazon have swooped in and it's it's one of those where it's it's interesting simply because it, it adds another kind of string to the bow of Amazon's streaming services. Um, they've obviously got the Amazon Prime service now, and with this, that they've got you know pretty much the the best game streaming service out there. Um, unlike Google, who are perhaps going to push it more for for advertising revenue, with with Amazon, as they were slow to the phone market, this is one way to kind of get to the games and the 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 tv market really you know if, if they want a box in in the living room if they want a box that you know people can perhaps maybe play rudimentary games at an early stage on but simply that they might be streaming content from you know tv services and then have a look at what's going on with games then yeah it's it's a great way for amazon just to just to get on your tv screens so i, I was really interested looking through uh what twitch is all about and how, how what, what the traffic is 55 million uniques a month that's some audience of people just watching other people play video games and this seems to be something that that certainly is huge in korea and it seems to be coming over here now and in the states where it's becoming a spectator sport now to watch other people play video games which seems quite alien to me it it is but if you consider the fact that should we say a large amount of games are are being tailored towards online competitive elements so therefore the, the the traditional idea of a single player story is slowly almost becoming slightly outmoded that you know you're getting games where they've got just a kind of token nod to a story and it, it's basically built around the idea of competitive online gaming and and the, the reason for that is that that's got a far longer tail and you can make money from that so it's not just a solitary purchase it's you can sell someone map packs you can sell people additional content and continue monetizing that and if like me you are absolutely abject at such games it, watching someone else play is is just a, a kind of great way to pick up tips and and it, it's you know yeah it is almost like um it it's like a like a sport of sorts you know you're watching people compete okay. i do like watching the retro playthroughs on certain old games i played as a kid just watching someone you know give, give life to, to something i i won't have played in sort of 20 odd years you know watching someone complete rick dangerous in like 20 <laughs> minutes that's just magic but isn't the danger of watching something like that the the fact that it's going to be so demoralising because you're so shit. In working on that principle, very few people would watch professional football. Well, I suppose. Yeah, but we all dream of it. <laughs> I could still make it. 
are you talking about? <laughs> what, is playing games or playing football? Oh, football, definitely. <laughs> uh, and to wrap up on the games news for this week, Mark, uh, Sony PSN uh, disrupted again with a cyber attack. Yes, um, Sony uh, basically said that there, it looks like no personal details were pinched. It was a DDoS attack distributed denial of service so it's basically designed to just stop people accessing um the playstation network and block usage um which is becoming increasingly uh used as a a form of kind of uh i suppose you say online protest um it's it's claimed uh there's kind of links to islamic extremists um so it's an interesting uh kind of side shoot of the war on terror that you've got to take to twitter but um the chap, John Smedley, president of uh, Sony Online Entertainment, uh, was discussing it via Twitter, and then there was a bomb threat uh, phoned in to basically divert his plane. So it's, you know, it, it has got quite serious. It's a new frontier to be contested. Wow. I didn't realise it was political as that. Well, there's an element of it, yeah. Um... But don't forget, Al-Qaeda have a press officer. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone's got to be, you know, internet yeah. smart these days. Yeah, ISIS seem quite clued up when it comes to that kind of thing. Or see, I can't see, I, I can't see their name without thinking of ISS. <laughs> <laughs> I can't think of it without thinking of Archer. Archer, the TV show. Yeah, because he works for ISIS, and I—that's I, I, what you know. When there was the, uh, the on uh, Twitter the other night with the Ask Islamic State hashtag, I asked them if they changed their name to avoid being associated with an alcoholic borderline. <laughs> Autistic cartoon character. So um, it'll be gone soon. Well, we'll see. That war on you. I don't think they necessarily instigated it, to be honest. But uh, yeah. And that wraps up games news. We'll be back in a sec <laughs> with movies. Okay, Steve. Uh, time for us all to go for a piece. So, what has been at the cinema? Oh, this week, Phil. I saw Lucy, which is the new film. Written and directed by Luc Besson, uh, starring Scarlett Johansson. Um, I, I really like Nikita and Leon, but I've got to say, since then, from the fifth element onwards, really, Luc Besson's gone seriously downhill and spent much of the last two decades either making or producing the same kind of generic thrillers over and over again, most of which take place in Paris. Um, and Lucy, whilst it's not as bad as some of the stuff he's been doing recently, uh, does quite often fall into that category. Um, you know, there's an element of science fiction to it. Basically, it, it starts off with that ridiculous premise, which is completely untrue, that we only use 10% of our brains, which is, isn't true at all. We use all of our brain. We only may not use all of it consciously, but we do use it all. But in the film, we only use 10%, and there's a drug which helps you access more of your brain. And, and throughout the course of the film, um, Lucy becomes exposed to the drug, played by Scarlett Johansson. Gradually, her, her access to her brain capacity increases from 10% to 100%. Um, and this takes it into the realms of pure science fiction uh, and, and fantasy to a certain extent too, because she develops kinetic powers and sort of powers beyond just pure intellectual ability. Um, I, I guess you could look at it as a kind of superhero movie in effect. You know, in, in, in her case, she has a bag of this drug sewn into her stomach as a way of smuggling it through a country's customs. But she gets kicked in the stomach and that's what breaks it apart and exposes her to it. In the same way, I guess, Spider-Man gets bitten by a radioactive spider and develops superpowers. So she develops superpowers. The problem is she develops them quite early into the film and therefore is never really at risk after that. So the action scenes are, are quite dull. Uh, I find them very dull because there's no real tension to them because you know she can pretty much take out all the villains. All the villains, who, by the way, are, seem to be Koreans, even though the film starts off in Taiwan. 
Um, I don't know if that's intentional, whether he, Luke Wilson just didn't think anyone would notice that they were speaking Korean and not Taiwanese or Mandarin in the case of Taiwan. Um, but yeah, it was it was just it got. But the last twenty minutes, it just goes completely off piste and becomes this sort of metaphysical thing about that nature of time and and evolution. And it just um, it was really boring towards the end. And I just found it to be one of those films where he got carried away with the ideas and forgot about actually developing a coherent plot or any kind of sense of tension or danger or excitement. And you know, for it was meant to be an action movie, I just was bored to tears for a lot of sections of it because there was no real threat to her particularly. Um, and you don't really like or know any of the other characters. And uh, the best thing in it really is Scar Johansson because at least she, she plays Lucy interesting. You know, starts off as a kind of, a, you know, she's a normal early 20s girl and then as she becomes exposed to the truck and therefore she, she evolves effectively intellectually, she, um, she changes and her behavior and the way she talks it varies. And she obviously is channeling both her performance as an alien and under the skin and as the voice of Samantha, the AR, the operating system in, um, in her uh, kind of combining the two in certain, certain aspects. So she's interesting in it, but the film itself, I think overreaches, loses its way towards the end and isn't actually very exciting in terms of his action scenes. Um, it's a really unfortunate it, name for her as well. Well, there's a reason why it's Lucy. Um, well, it's Nick Drake back to the Australopithecine or yeah, whatever. Yeah, the first human. Or the problem is that um, that just makes it sound like the National Jew. And then, then, you know, we're not talking about Scarlett Johansson. We're talking about a hairy semi-monkey. Um, yeah. yeah. There's a point where she actually travels through time, God knows how, uh, and actually meets Lucy, the, you know, the ape, humanoid ape and then touches the fingers and you know like the Sistine Chapel it really is cobblers it was I just thought it was the kind of thing you'd write when you were 12 or maybe before you were 18 you thought you were really good in English lit or something and it just it's it's really and uh, he's into cutting scenes of animals and stuff like that you know nature documentaries to try and give it some sort of gravitas which completely fails Morgan Freeman pops up which makes you think immediately of transcendence which it has some similarities with uh, it's it's not very good. Kaz gave it seven out of ten, and I think personally he's being incredibly generous to do that. I think it was a five at best. Um, I actually nodded off a couple of times towards the end because it was just getting so boring, and you just didn't care. And it was I think getting... someone should make a rule that you can't just call a film just a name. <laughs> I think it, it usually I, like John Carter and that kind of thing. It I just... don't think it should have been called John Carter. That was just Disney bottling. It had the title of the word Mars in its title originally. But that's the point. It, it just, I don't know, there's something just totally uncatchy about it. And you also think, well, Leon, you know, kind of, I, to be honest, I think that maybe, the, I, I, I think Leon works perfectly well. But ha- that has a little graph, though, doesn't it? <laughs> accent. So that, that makes oh, all the difference. The rule, it being it? foreign makes it yeah, all right. Exactly. To be fair, the, the title's the least of Lucy's problems. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, anyway, it's uh, I wouldn't I, I wouldn't bother going to see it myself uh, unless I had to. Obviously, um, I think Kaz's review Kaz's review is fairly accurate in terms of his appraisal of the film and and where it goes wrong. But I think he's very generous with the score. I think he's got a soft spot for Besson, um, which I don't have anymore. Um, and um, whilst it's not perhaps as generic or as uninteresting or as bad as some of the other stuff that Luke Besson's been involved in. Um, it, it just loses its way in the, in the last 20 minutes and becomes a lot of metaphysical, metaphysical bollocks. Um, so five out of 10 from me, seven out of 10 from Kaz. The other film I saw was Into the Storm, which for those of you who haven't seen Twister will be interesting, but if you have seen Twister, you know exactly what to expect. It is essentially, I mean, it's not a remake exactly, but it covers a lot of the same ground. You know, one big storm hitting a certain area in the course of a day, a group of disparate characters who get caught up together. And, um, 
and uh, you know, obviously multiple twisters all over the place, ending up with a massive F five. And you know, in this obviously this being a modern film, it has to go one one up from the previous film. So whilst Twister had a pretty big you know, tornado, like a mile across, this one's got a tornado so big at the end it picks up seven four sevens, which would suggest it had wind speeds in excess of four hundred miles an hour, which seems unlikely. That would make it the biggest storm in ever. Um, but uh, it's fun, you know. It's it's got some quite exciting moments in it. The effects are very well done, I thought. Um, you know, the, the the tornadoes and the CG were excellent. Um, the characters are fairly uninteresting, and the actors don't much do apart from like run around and avoid debris. But um, but at least there there are moments that are quite exciting. Um, by coincidence, my parents ended up seeing it with me because they wandered into the same cinema that I was in. Totally by coincidence. <laughs> totally by coincidence. And I was like, what are we doing here? And they said, oh, we thought we'd come and see a film. So, um, and they enjoyed it, actually. <laughs> they really enjoyed it. Um, and then I didn't, I didn't not enjoy it, actually. I, I found it quite, I found it fun. I, I was sitting there thinking, this is going to be a fantastic Blu-ray. Because <laughs> it's a you know, good picture and, and really good sound. So, yeah, I think it's it, it, probably, maybe not bother seeing it at the cinema, but definitely might be worth picking up on Blu-ray because it's going to sound amazing at home. <laughs> How many sharks were it? No sharks were thrown around. They did have a flying cow, though, which obviously I think was obviously a tip to the, of the hat to Twister. <laughs> um, but uh, it's got an Atmos soundtrack, so if you can, if, I don't know where it's playing, but if you can see an Atmos, I think that'll be pretty interesting. Um, uh, and definitely, I think it will make a great demo disc when, when it comes out on Blu-ray. And it is a fun film. So if you're looking for a, you know, a fun evening at its flicks, when you don't have to think too much, um, just want to be entertained, it works very well. I get it 7 out of 10. I think that's, that's a fair score. It's, it's, you know, it's well made. It's fun in places. It's very exciting at times. It's utterly ludicrous at other other times, obviously. Um, there was one moment in it that uh, I don't think it's meant to be funny, but the whole audience started laughing, and so it was unintentionally funny. But uh, on the whole, it, it, it was a good laugh. And uh, yeah, 7 out of 10. Um, I still prefer Twister, though. I'm disappointed there's no sharks in it. Well, you can go and see Sharknado, or Sharknado 2, or Sharknado 3. <laughs> Have you actually seen Sharknado? No, I've, I've just seen the highlights. <laughs> <laughs> you can watch you, it on um, isn't there, there's also one on the sci-fi channel with stone tornadoes oh. and basically uh, there's like how how can this happen and the bloke just goes they just do alright <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh, there's there's a couple of videos on YouTube Steve which is just the best bits of Sharknado and Sharknado 2 and it's just hilarious it's, it really I is I think when you say the best bits the like, like the most bits. ludicrous funny well, the, the films are just ludicrous. So it's just all the all the, the most over the top bits, and really painful dialogue all in one sort of four minute video. It's fantastic. My sister in law is actually busy working up a script to try and flog to these people. I don't give any of the details away, but it, I, it's magnificent. It it deserves its place in the sci fi movies pantheon. So uh, fingers crossed. <laughs> well, we'll look forward to that one, Ned. Uh, moving Absolutely. on. <laughs> Uh, Blu-rays released next week, Steve. Yeah, we've got The Amazing Spider-Man 2. I should probably apologise at this point because I think I had that up a couple of weeks ago. It was coming out, but I got the date wrong. <laughs> it's coming out next week. Okay, so we I don't need to go through. If, if you want to know about The Amazing Spider-Man, go and download last week's podcast because Steve <laughs> describes it last week's. Right. Uh, Sons of Anarchy, Season 6, The Honourable Woman, uh, Ghostbusters 1 and 2, and Cosmos. Which ones out of there would you pick? Um, I'm, I've never actually seen Sons of Anarchy, but I know Mark Hodgkinson is a big fan. So I, I guess if he was here, we'd say definitely get to check that out. Um, I have heard good things about the series, and I keep, keep meaning to watch it. I haven't got around to it. The Honourable Woman was on BBC just recently, so it's, I think it just finished last week. So it's a quick turnaround to disc. 
Um, again, I haven't seen that, but apparently it's very, very good, and I'm quite tempted to buy it um, because it sounded excellent. And I'm, I'm sorry I missed it. That stars uh, Maggie, Maggie Gyllenhaal, and um, apparently it's, it's a very tough watch, but it's very good. Ghostbusters 1 and 2, I'm going to get that. Um, I, thought I love these, Ghostbusters. I thought, were, I thought they were released recently. Is, no, it, was, uh, it, was, it got a, a brief cinema reissue, a release for but one they, day. But they not mastered in 4K discs? Uh, Ghostbusters did. Um, well, this is basically Ghostbusters, and they've also remastered Ghostbusters 2 and put right. them together. I don't think Ghostbusters 2 was available on Blu-ray before. Okay. Um, and I wouldn't... I mean, I, actually, I can't, I, I can, I've only seen Ghostbusters 2 once, so I really don't remember much about it, but um, I probably will pick it up just because... A, a I, I get Ghostbusters 2 as well, and also I think there's some new, new stuff on it, like a new documentary and that kind of thing worth seeing. And then there's the new the series Cosmos, which is the new series, obviously based originally upon Carl Sagan's series in the 70s, Cosmos, um, with Neil deGrasse Tyson, uh, executive produced by Seth MacFarlane, of all people. And um, I just started watching it on Netflix US. It looks um, fun. Um, so if you're into space and science, might be worth picking up. Um, Does it do so- Seth MacFarlane-style cutscenes? <laughs> no, it doesn't. It does do, there are animated sequences in it, though, actually, but um, yeah, not, not cutscenes. <laughs> and no Conway Twitty. And no Conway Twitty. Well, not so far, anyway. But okay. maybe, maybe there'll be a fine room for him. Uh, yes, that's what's out this week. So a pretty quiet week, actually, next week, um, I guess, at that time of year, really. Okay. Um, and, of course, it's Eva next week, so the podcast, we're going to be talking about uh, Eva and that kind of thing next week. Um, I'm just trying to see what else we're wrapping up on here. Uh, Ed, uh, what's your favourite war move? War move? War move. It should be movie, but Steve's written war move. So what, And I know you've studied war, so what is your favourite war move? Um, it's got to be... Uh, man, Eric von Manstein's backhand, and that's what he actually called it, named after, after the tennis story. Essentially, it consists of making your opposition uh, push large quantities of their own armor forward, overexert themselves, wait until they are waiting on fuel and uh, and re- rearming, and then you you essentially you hit you hit them hit them on the backhand on the counterstroke, and provided that you've got enough room to do it, like say the Ukraine. Um, it works extremely well, um, and uh, the favourite argument of armchair historians is that if um, Manstein and, to a lesser extent, his other chap, who uh, was was sort of semi in command on D-Day, von Rundstedt, uh, had their their way and had been allowed to have all of their defences sort of parked outside Paris and and done something similar, there is an argument that they probably wouldn't have won, but they might have made a better fist of defending France than as it was piling everything forward into Normandy and having it hacked to pieces by vastly superior amounts of Wasn't that part of um, Montgomery's plan to deliberately draw the Germans into into, into Cannes, wasn't it? Well, yes, that worked after a fashion. Um it was kind kind of expensive in terms of material and, and, and people lost. But yes, in, in an absolute sense, it worked. It kept it kept the Germans pointing in one direction whilst Patton et al. were able to, to, to loop round the back of them. So yeah, it, it, it functioned. But um, essentially, it had had the, the the backhand approach been 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 taken into account normandy would have been effectively sacrificed in the immediate term you know all the allies would have met all of their day one objectives and more they would not have encountered significant opposition until they were out of out of all the hedgerows and stuff but i mean it's all back into the what if and conjecture 
and 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 the like. So you know what happened happened, and you know it's no no, no real us. point. <laughs> yes, absolutely. There's no real point point. Uh, so know, where did he it, use the backhand? Um, after the fall of Stalingrad, in, well, after the encirclement of Stalingrad in late 1942, early 43, he basically watched this counteroffensive, you know, come come out from there. He waited until they got to Kharkov, which I believe is in the Ukraine, um, and they were pretty much exhausted by that point and basically just did the equivalent of just snapping the end of that offensive spearhead off. And it was probably the last really big success the Germans ever really had in the East. It was, it was a very, very economical mission, uh, very exercise in terms of the, 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 the exchange rate of losses and the like, it was a, a, just a very elegant piece of generaling. And you can sort of be, you can sort of admire, be allowed to admire Manstein because he didn't do anything thoroughly unpleasant towards either various ethnic minorities or, or, or other people. So you know, he, he's not, not entirely evil either. So, so go him. So there you go, dear listener, you learn something new every every week on the AV Forums podcast. So there you go. Uh, that's Ed's favourite war move. Uh, <laughs> so let's move on to our favourite war movies, Steve. And uh, why are we asking this question? Well, the reason I put the question in was purely because my favourite war film is A Bridge Too Far, which was directed by Richard Attenborough. As we mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, died yesterday at the age of 90. And so I thought it might be interesting to see what I mean. I thought I was specifically thinking of Ed here, given that he studied war at university, he might have a different perspective on war films. Um, and you know, I think war films do fall into two categories these days those that were made before Saving Private Ryan and those that were made after Saving Private Ryan. But uh, my personal favorite is Bridgie Far for a number of reasons, apart from that, I saw it when I was a kid. Uh, in 77, my dad took me to the cinema and I really, really enjoyed it because I was being any kid of the 70s, you kind of grew up on war movies. Um, and they were very much the old school war movies that where it was all daring do and the Germans were a bunch of bastards, uh, Nazis were horrible and the, and the good guys were all stiff up a lip and, and it was like, you know, Clint Eastwood with two two machine guns giving it loads and where eagles dare and you think, this, this is all brilliant. Whereas A Bridge Too Far was a, a genuine attempt to tell the Battle of Arnhem as accurate as possible. There are mistakes in it. And uh, a couple of scenes which I find really galling, but on the whole, it's reasonably successful in its attempt to be uh, historically accurate within the confines of a three-hour movie. Um, and it also is one of the first films I, well, the first one I'd seen that really showed war to be unpleasant and not as exciting and fun and full of, you know, these wooden people like that. It was, you know, an anti-war film in many respects, and that was kind of a new thing to me as a kid. Um, since then, of course, you know, I think Private Ryan, Private Ryan has set a standard in terms of both capturing battle footage in a film and also taking it to a level of reality or hyper reality that is some sometimes can be considered you know disturbing and really it makes you well i think i think that's as close as i ever want to get to being anywhere near a war um and i think any film made since then has always been influenced by it well, you see um, I, I think i know you're saying war movie here but in, in, after that i think band of brothers and pacific are probably the best made most accurate Look and portrayal at war. Band yeah, of Brothers is, is for me is a superior portrayal to Private Ryan. I agree, actually, Ed, because Private Ryan's uh, Private Ryan's um, reputation rests upon that opening twenty minutes, the back, you know, the Omaha Beach landing, which yep. is staggering. Yep. The rest of that film is very much a traditional men on a mission war movie. Yeah. Um, Whereas, Brothers, as I say, I mean, Band of Brothers. The, the thing about Band of Brothers and and the Pacific, I will say that I didn't enjoy the Pacific as much, but what they effortlessly capture is that people die 
all the time. It doesn't take big engagements where something important happens. People just get killed and horribly injured and horribly maimed day in, day out. And often in the most ignominious of circumstances. And I think that that and the German film Stalingrad capture that just with a degree of cold-hearted effortlessness that is 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 what needs to be done to portray these 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 films correctly and i've got to say after seeing the beginning of seven private ryan um i i said to myself rather selfishly um thank god i wasn't around back then yeah. <laughs> um, which is a very selfish thing to think when you think of the sacrifices made um you know in both the, the the big world wars, the, the just the sheer sacrifice that was made by by people and the sheer horror, absolutely everything that goes on, um, which for me the war movies always been a very um, love it and leave it subject because on I have this feeling where I think war should not should never be for entertainment, um, and and how can it be for entertainment when it is so gross? You know what I'm getting at. Um, yeah, yeah. It, it's such a, a horrible thing, but at the same time, I guess through our curiosity, um, human curiosity, we we want to know more. We want to know about, you know, what what was it like, and 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 so on. So, I, I guess to a certain degree, you could ha- you could say that the war movie has certain things that it has to it has to portray and it has to do accurately to do it any good. So it's interesting that you mentioned the movies that were made after the war, Steve. The ones that you watched when you were a kid in the seventies, because the tone is so different to what you would get now with a, a filmmaker making a, a, a movie or a TV series like Band of Brothers or whatever about the effects of war. Well, yeah, but you also don't forget that war movies are uh, a, a, a subsection of, of, of history, and they are shaped as much by the conflicts that society finds I, that was, that was what i was trying time. to get at ed you know on the one hand we shouldn't be we shouldn't have war war films for entertainment's sake but there's the whole history thing and there's a the whole thing i mean the beginning of saving private ryan that should be shown to every uh school kid in this country as should um schindler's list in my opinion there's, um, a, there's a danger though that then you, you're only getting the, the spielbergian view of history uh, you know the holocaust is far greater than just to story of Oscar Schindler in the same way that World War II or any war is very different from just the Omaha beach landings which actually were the exception to the landings in D-Day most of them weren't like that at all yeah there were a lot less there was a lot less resistance on most of the other beaches but um I think the thing is any war film very much reflects its time as you just said so for example war films made during the war were very patriotic very nationalistic very much about getting you you know well they were just pure propaganda propaganda effectively yeah and those made after the war, so in the 50s and 60s, um, reflected, a, I think, reflected an opinion or a t- reflected a time more than they did. I don't think anyone was quite as stiff upper lipped or the war was quite as black and white, or it definitely wasn't as black and white as it often made out to be in those films. I think by the time you got to the 60s, it was far enough removed from the Second World War, I'd say 20 years later, that you could actually treat it as entertainment, which is very much what they were in the 60s and 70s, I think. And then there was a definite shift towards treating war 
uh, you know, saying, well, hang on, this this isn't entertainment, as you just said, Phil, this is something serious. So I think someone like that, I, I probably did start with, with A Bridge Too Far because that was one of the first films that tried to tell as accurately as possible Operation Market Garden as a piece of history and showing you that war was unpleasant and both sides. And, and there's all these stories within the, you know, acts of heroism, you know, terrible things that happened. And, you know, that's what war is like. And, and I think Spielberg's view was very much when making Private Ryan was he wanted to do the, the veterans justice and tell that as it really happened. And I think most filmmakers since then have taken that view as well. Probably the exception would be Terence Malick, who's Thin Red Line, you know, is typical Malick in a way. You know, it's about you mean utter, utterly baffling. Yeah, and quite. Yeah, lots of shots of the jungle. Unentertaining. <laughs> I would sooner try and I don't know, try and eat a pint glass. Well, I, I think there's there's kind of the problem is you've got war films which are centered around actual battles and then you've got war films which are basically kind of your standard allegories for kind of human barbarism and the like like i mean apocalypse now are, are we counting that very much as a war film i don't think it is a war film no that i i wouldn't necessarily um but if you look at the list of war films they're really most of them probably fall closer to the latter category of being about individuals and their struggles as opposed to like a bridge too far trying to actually retell particular historical conflicts and trying to tell them with some kind of accuracy because that it i think in in a sense that's actually just too damn hard to do yes i think there's definitely an element of that i mean you often find that um when you're not doing individuals the best way is to if you like artificially contain it this is where Stalingrad works quite effectively because it contain it it's it is a unit a very small unit of people um and Das Boot is equally effective because it's a closed a closed set it is a submarine it's got 84 people on it or whatever um, and many of them simply just pop around in the background so it it again it it, it puts it a a, a huge you know a, a manageable sense of perspective on what is a very large event and yeah, trying to get it sorted in any other way is, is, is quite complicated. I mean, where war films get particularly interesting is when you're dealing with um, uh, film portrayals of wars that didn't go desperately well. Um, so obviously Vietnam films are in themselves, uh, if we uh, discount the efforts of John Wayne and Chuck Norris in this particular <laughs> regard, they, are, they, are, they, they, they have a very different tone. And then... Uh, obviously there's not been much done yet about our, our latest adventures in in foreign climes but um uh you know you get uh what's the one that won the oscar uh, hurt locker yeah and then zero dark 30 obviously both by the same director they're not yeah neither of them are exactly what you call celebratory aren't they more of a yeah. commentary i think in some respects what so, about um let's move away from world war Two then what about because i really love the film waterloo because yeah, it's, it's, it's again, it really good. lays out the battle. I think Steiger's great as Napoleon, and I think which um, Christopher Plummer's excellent as uh, as Duke of Wellington. And you know, there's nothing more impressive in those pre-CG days than seeing twenty thousand real people on a field <laughs> you know, <laughs> acting like this when they're forming the squares. There's a brilliant shot in that film where you follow the French cavalry and they go over the crest of a hill, and over the crest of a hill there are like about ten giant squares of troops, and you think. Me, <laughs> and that's for real. There, there, there's not very often these days. You, you never think that in a film because you just think oh, CGI. Mm. That's one of the few films I wish they bring out on Blu-ray. I'd love to have it on Blu-ray, where you just think 
holy shit, that's 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 not being faked. Those, those are real people standing there. Well, the, um, the, the other alternative war movie, Braveheart, they did that. They had real battlefield. Trust me, not what? on the same scale as Walking Dead. No, no, not, not on the same scale, but, but you were you were saying about you know modern movies. Well, that's I think that's the last modern movie that ever did that. That had thousands and thousands of extras. Mm, yeah, and also it was quite brutal and violent in, in that modern sensibility that I didn't get so much of in the past. I mean, there's definitely been a, we've been I guess we've been slightly desensitised, haven't we, over the years? But who, albeit you know, television and news and news coverage of wars and then films and video games, whatever else, but. They have become progressive, but there's been a real trend towards, you know, if you're going to show violence, show it as realistically as possible. And Braveheart was pretty bloody, wasn't it? Yeah, it was bloody good. And that's, I'm sure that's what battles were like back then, you know, brutal, vicious, just thumping crap out of each other with great big swords and hammers and whatever else you get your hands on. Uh, and if you got injured, you were almost certainly going to die. So, yeah. And of course, there histor- is, historically bollocks. Uh, and of course, the the results of that movie will be known on the eighteenth of uh, September. <laughs> <laughs> yes, <laughs> wasn't it? Wasn't it that Kev? Uh, what's that Scottish comedian Kevin Bridges? Uh, Bridges. Yeah, where he's going? They should show Braveheart and Train Spotting on the same night. It's like, yeah, this is us. <laughs> this is also us. <laughs> mm. <laughs> I thought it was quite quite clever. Yeah, but. very good. Very good. <laughs> Okay, so I guess we've got to wrap this up uh, with our favourite war movies, um, if we have any. So let's go to Mark Portwright first. What was yours? Um, depending on definition, I, you know, I'll, I'll plumb with Apocalypse Now simply because it's the easiest. Okay. Uh, Mr. Weathers? Bridge too far. Uh, Ed Selly? Uh, Stalingrad, but don't take that as to mean that I watch it with great enthusiasm week in week out it's good for about once a year and and to say it has a depressing ending is 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 an understatement to, to rival all just to clarify ed you're talking about the german film and not yes. the terrible russian one that came out last this year no 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 this is the german one and it's bloody marvelous it probably doesn't have a blu-ray release don't worry about it you'll cope with 576 lines just get a copy and watch it it's magnificent Okay, I, I think I'm going to be different here and plump for the Band of Brothers box set. Which is to be yeah, different. I don't know. That's not a movie, though, for us, a miniseries. Yeah, it's uh, or, or it's a long what? movie. It depends which, which, it, uh, how, how you define it. Well, Have it you was seen shown it as cinema? on broadcast television <laughs> as a TV series. Ergo, it's not a film. All right, okay. It's still my choice. <laughs> Fine, then I'm going to pick Tropic Thunder, then. <laughs> 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 in that okay. case I'm picking Aliens <laughs> <laughs> Braveheart what about Star Wars was the movie the cartoon one Star that's, Wars. A, that's a savage but savage yeah well it's got wars in the title isn't it so it counts and it's, a, it's a historical conflict as well don't forget yeah it happened a long time ago long time ago <laughs> Right, enough of this silliness. Uh, that is all we got time for on the podcast this week. My thanks go to Steve Withers. Flatten Arnhem. Mark Buttright. Have you ever been liberated before? And Ed Selly. He's dead. I'm crippled. You're lost. Don't forget you can follow us on Twitter and Facebook, bookmarkavforums.com for latest reviews, news and video. Plus, you can also leave us a rating on iTunes. If you enjoyed the show, I'm Phil Hinton. Thanks very much for listening. And we'll see you again next Wednesday. 